So one of the things that I find I really love about the Buddhist teachings is how I find their truth evident in so many places and ways, not solely in the suttas. And of course, the Buddha never claimed that his teaching was a revelation only available to him, either through divine, some divine message or any other way. So I looked up revelation just because I was curious, and the dictionary defines a revelation as a surprising or previously unknown fact. And of course, the Buddha never claimed that he was revealing something unknown. He was just pointing out what we may have been previously unwilling to see or unable to see. So the truth of his teachings are everywhere if we can open our hearts and our minds to seeing things as they are, rather than through our screen of views and memories and opinions and desires and fears. And this, of course, is what the Buddha said. He said he was only pointing out how it is, what it is like to be born as a human in this realm. Therefore, it's not really unusual or surprising that we may hear things from people with no connection or knowledge of the Buddha's teachings that echo the same messages he taught. And I particularly enjoy finding these kinds of things in non-Buddhist sources. For example, every year in my weekly group, we listen to The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, because I find so much in that story is so closely parallels and exemplifies the teachings of the path that we are on. I also often find the children's books speak to issues of suffering and gain and loss and virtue in ways that support my understanding of this path of meditation and practice. In a retreat I taught recently for the Sunday night, we had a bedtime story and I read aloud from one of my favorite children's books. And then Sunday morning, um, I talked about how I felt the story reflected some of the Buddha's teachings, but also how it demonstrated so many blind spots that exist until we're willing to really see the world as it is and the way the Buddha helped us do rather than as we want it to be. So I think about this path of practice we are on as a way to learn how to grow in happiness and wisdom. So that's what I really want to talk about this morning. And when I thought about that for this talk, something kind of surprising came to mind. Something not from the Buddha, um, but a powerful teaching nonetheless. And I'm not the only one, I think, who's ever responded to this teaching as being pretty strong. And I expected some of you might have too. So I'm going to play just a minute here of what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't want to interrupt her again. So I'm not sure I ever knew those lyrics, um, even though I danced to this song many, many times. But they have a really potent message. They point out how those endless ads in the car are useless and designed to fire my imagination. And the, the next verse, which I decided I wouldn't continue to play, um, points out the, what his words, the, um, Mick Jagger's words, the pointlessness inherent in spending time concerned about how white my shirts are and the ill will in only respecting people who behave like me. She he's talking about the, the verses who smoke the same cigarette brand I do. So even though I only, I always thought of it as only a song that I like to dance to, it offered some pretty wise social commentary. And the stones were clearly pointing to the suffering that the Buddha identified in the first noble truth. But the song doesn't have much to offer about growing happiness and wisdom, only about the pervasiveness of suffering and dissatisfaction. The Buddha's Four Noble Truths do teach that there is suffering, but not only that. The whole point is to direct us to the Third and Fourth Noble Truths on the cessation of suffering and the path to its cessation. For me also, the song's lyrics point to the truth that the world can't ever satisfy. Satisfaction does not reside in the worldly realm. To me, I've seen this based on my own lived experience, practice, and reflection on the teachings of the Buddha. I, of course, am not asking any of you to take that on as a belief, because it isn't a thing where one says, okay, now I'm a Buddhist, so that I have to believe there isn't satisfaction in the worldly realm. These teachings are for our consideration and reflection, not for blind belief. They encourage that we question for ourselves what satisfaction is and where can it be found? And then to consider it again and again and again, more and more deeply. And for many people, I think myself as well, this way of reflecting that the Buddha encourages us to do is a somewhat new way of considering and listening than maybe we had done before. Because it's different than listening to a lecture or a sermon, or even, or maybe certainly, maybe especially, the way we learn in a classroom. But this is the way that the Buddha is wanting us, encouraging us to grow in happiness and wisdom. We grow by receiving experience and contemplating. The Buddha calls this wise reflection. And it's different than just taking on beliefs based on learning something. It requires an ongoing investigation of our own insights and experience. It requires an open mind and heart. So here is a brief five minute bit from Ajahn Munindo. Some of you may know him, he's a monk in this tradition. And in this, this is the very beginning of a talk he gave and it's sort of an aside. He says, before I give this talk, I want to talk just a minute about how to listen to Dhamma as a way of reflection rather than evaluation. Uh, before 
addressing the questions, I wanted to uh, say something about listening to Dhamma talks. It occurs to me that not everybody gets this mode of Dhamma sharing. And we're all, of course, familiar with what it's like to go to lectures and to receive information and be told things on a particular topic. And, but that's not what these Dhamma talks are about. And if we want information about Buddhism, well, it's probably better to go looking into books or other resources. So it's not a lecture. And then also probably many of us will be familiar with the mode of giving sermons where we're being told how we should be. However, in this mode of listening to Dhamma talks, it's better to consider it as an invitation or an opportunity to participate in a shared contemplation. At least that's how I see it. And to reflect on that occasion and recorded in the, in the traditional scriptures of where the Buddha is speaking with his son Rahula and asks Rahula, what is the function of a mirror? And Rahula replies that a mirror is for seeing your face. And the Buddha comments further by saying that for seeing the mind, I say you need wise reflection. Wise reflection is for seeing the mind. And so this wise reflection or contemplation is a particular skill, not certainly in the context of Western Buddhist tradition. Many people approach practice with the idea of applying some technique, trying to make the mind peaceful, and that can have its certainly its advantages, its benefits, and to get a break from excessive mental activity. However, to just make the mind quiet is not, that's not the point of practice. It's, to have access to some quietude, it's like if you're doing some baking and you have, you have access to the cooking materials, but you can't eat the flour or that's not edible. That's not the point. It's certain that's not the cooking of the meal and certainly not the eating of the meal. So having access to the raw materials matters. Yeah. So being able to put our compulsively or habitually picking and choosing and discriminating thinking mind to one side to put it into abeyance, not because we don't know how to be critical or we don't know how to think, but just because if the mind is always in a critical mode, always agreeing, disagreeing with what's being said, you know, I could say that better, or why doesn't he say this? And if we're in that mode, then that means we're not really available for receiving. That's, that's not really participating in a shared contemplation. So I just wanted to comment on that because not everybody is, is aware that that's what's on offer with these Dhamma talks. It's not the case that this is just 
relaying information that one is going to agree or disagree with. I mean, whether we agree or disagree with, that's not really the point. The point is to receive it, to participate in it, to listen in a quiet manner, to take it inwards, and then afterwards to ponder on it. Who knows, it might be a very long time before the, uh, the message of these contemplations becomes apparent. But if we haven't even been really present for the message, if we didn't, we weren't even there to really receive the message because our mind was so filled up with thinking, then maybe we're going to miss out. So I appreciate his uh, reflection here that, and his um, choice of words of talking about Dhamma as a shared contemplation. Because it also helps me remember that this opportunity we have for growing in happiness and wisdom isn't something that's going to come from anyone else. It happens when we can receive experience with an open heart and mind. We receive from our own experience. We share contemplation to receive from the experience of others and from teachers, and then we make it our own. So what I'm suggesting is that practice is about developing the confidence to trust the heart and mind, to recognize suffering and happiness, and the causes and conditions that support or sustain each of them. So growing in the Dhamma means reflecting upon and fitting the teachings into our specific life and experience. It's not recommending that we completely reject or accept any of it, but that we contemplate and reflect on it. We can set aside what may not seem useful now, but no, it might be more useful in the future. We don't throw it away, we set it aside. That's how we grow in the Dhamma, bit by bit. Making use of the teachings that make sense and are applicable for us right now and setting aside others to come back to in the future. Another recent teaching that I heard from outside of Buddhism that was very helpful for me in reflecting on this topic of growing in wisdom and happiness is a quote attributed to Albert Einstein. You never know if these quotes actually were that person, but this one's been attributed to Albert Einstein. And it, he said, supposedly, you can't solve a problem with the mindset that created it. I think maybe it was actually that reading this quote from Einstein that brought to mind the Rolling Stones song because we can never get satisfaction by being dissatisfied, resistant, or disappointed. Feeding our thoughts of dissatisfaction will never produce greater satisfaction. A shift to something else is what is needed. A shift to a mindset unlike what caused the problem, as Einstein said. We can easily get mired in negative or painful mind states by responding with more of the same, at least I can. When I'm caught in restlessness and filled with impatience, my easy automatic response 
is to go jump do something else, to do something more and faster in response to the agitation and turmoil that I'm feeling. And of course, that will never work. That is trying to solve a problem with the mindset that created it. The only solution for restlessness and impatience is steadiness, calm, and patience. That isn't easy, of course, but it is the only thing that will ever ease a mind that is endlessly racing to the next thing. But this isn't to encourage swinging between extremes either because that's a pitfall I've recognized many times. Not liking one mind state or reaction, I find that I'll sometimes swing to the opposite. Noticing agitation, maybe I try to impose a rigid or harsh calm. Overeating one day, I may decide I'll not eat all the next day. Deciding I'm too sedentary, I'll implement an extreme exercise regimen. Feeling I'm not meditated enough, I'll start to meditate twice a day for twice as long. And of course, none of these responses, these reactive responses, are sustainable or wise. They're just swinging between extremes. And wisdom is not in extremes because extremes are reactive, not receptive. Wisdom requires receptivity and being open to noticing what is arising and the result. Receiving is about knowing how things are right now without reactively clinging or pushing away. Instead, receiving is about meeting the moment with openness, kindness, generosity, and compassion. And that, of course, is how we grow in wisdom and happiness. I have a favorite sutta that that tells us the Buddha's advice on how we can meet that which trips us up and causes us to suffer, but without swinging between extremes. So this is a sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya, number one, actually. And unlike some, it's a very short sutta. It begins when a deva approaches the Buddha to ask him how it was that he was able to cross the floods. Crossing the floods, as you may know, is a metaphor used in the suttas as a simile for that which swamps us, that which leads us away from open-hearted kindness, peace, and compassion, that is away from nibbana and the end of suffering. So here is how Ajahn Suchito explains this metaphor of crossing the floods. He says, a way of talking about transcendence liberation, or whatever you conceive of as a spiritual path, is to use the metaphor of crossing the floods. Often our interest in deep change gets triggered by being swept along by events, by the sense of being overwhelmed by, and even going under, a tide of worries, duties, and pressures. That's the floods. And crossing them is about coming through all that to find some firm ground. It takes some work, some skill, but we can do it. The vision of Dhamma is that if the mind is healed, strengthened, and calmed, if we are no longer swept away by our ideas, doubts, plans, regrets, grudges, and phobias, to name but a few, 
Then we can cross the floods and, to use a Buddhist metaphor, be standing on the other shore. Whatever the analogy, such transcendence means that we're neither generating stress nor caught in stressful consequences. That quote is from Ajahn Suchito's book on the Parma. So back to the story. So the Buddha approaches, I'm sorry, a deva approaches the Buddha and asks, how can we cross the floods of this life to enable us to grow in happiness and wisdom? And the danger of floodwaters, of course, is that we either get pulled down into an undertow or we get swept away dangerously in the rapidly moving water. And of course, those same risks apply to the metaphorical, phys- metaphorical floods of our life. How do we face the floods of life, especially those internal floods of the heart and the mind without getting pulled under or being swept away? It's really a wonderful, powerful image, isn't it? So when asked this question by the deva, this is what the Buddha said. By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But this isn't so clear to the deva who then says, but how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining, you crossed the flood? And the Buddha replies, when I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. I find this so helpful because it seems so true to my own experience. And it speaks to this tendency to swing between extremes. Coming to a standstill is giving up, which is so easy to do when we encounter a problem. Whether it's a mundane, straightforward problem like learning some new cooking or manual skill, or dealing with the new technology, which we do all the time, or maybe something more subtle and complex like a challenge in a relationship. Coming to a standstill means we throw in the towel in defeat. We give up, we stop, we halt. And that means we sink. The flood of anger or grief or greed or irritation or suffering pulls us down. We're stuck and we can see no way out we drown. The opposite is that we struggle and strain, continually knocking up against a wall of confusion and frustration. That's when the flood can come along and sweep us along. We get caught in an endless flow of greed or ill will or ignorance. Again, the flood wins and we drown. What's so beautiful to me in this image is its accuracy. When caught in the torrent of a flood, you can't just give up, nor should you thrash around and exhaust yourself. It is possible to save yourself, but it isn't by halting or by straining. It's a much more delicate middle way that requires wise effort and awareness of the conditions of the water and of your own body. The sutta is reminding us that there is a way other than halting or straining. It's the middle way, and it's less easy to put into words. Finding the middle way requires contemplation, 
reflection, wisdom, and care. It isn't a midpoint or a compromise. It's something else entirely. There isn't going to be a middle way that is always the same. We need to find the middle way in each circumstance. Sometimes the middle way may call for direct action and sometimes for restraint and a willingness to let things unfold at their own pace. Even if caught in floodwaters, there will be times when we need to rest and times when we need to keep moving to stay afloat. We have to avoid believing that one or the other is always the way. Delusion leads us to attach to just one way or the other. Wisdom leads us towards open-hearted reflection and the willingness to meet each moment anew if we are to cross this flood of samsara successfully. So let me share a brief personal example of finding myself in floodwaters and about to be swamped. Happened actually quite recently, maybe four, four, somewhere between four and six months ago, I was reading some suttas. And I read one that used a phrase that wasn't clear to me. And the footnote, it was, it was in um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations and you know, he has those thousands of footnotes. So I went to the footnote and the footnote referred me to another sutta where the phrase would be explained. So I went to that, dutifully, I went to that sutta and read this second sutta, and it was like being punched in the gut. I've read many suttas over 20 plus years, and never have I encountered one quite like this. This sutta was out and out misogynist, and I was dumbfounded. The surprise of it was almost as much as hard as the fact of it. I was hurt and angry and mostly just really sort of confused, befuddled, just lost. I was also worried that some of the people that I meet with every week would encounter this sutta and I wouldn't have any idea what to say. So I had to sit with this for quite a several weeks, I think, until I could find some ground and balance around it, until I could know how not to halt or struggle. The first impulse, of course, was to fix it, to change the monastic rules or the tradition or the institution. Undoing 2,500 years of patriarchy would be wonderful. And in fact, there are many wonderfully encouraging developments in heading that way. But I came to realize that these changes, while I thrilled with them and I support them, that these changes really only address the conditions in the world and don't directly address the flood in my heart. The way to address the flood in my heart, right here, right now, is to recognize that reactivity. And as Einstein said, to remember that it can't be solved with the mindset that created it. So in my experience, misogyny is real. It exists. It's the result of greed and hatred and ignorance and delusion. But responding to it with greed and hatred or ignorance sustains that problem. And more importantly, it doesn't help me survive the flood in my heart. It seeks to redress what I am averse to 
with similarly aversive mindset. And the only way out of a dangerous and painful flood is through wise reflection and an attitude unlike the one that created the problem. What's needed is an attitude that shifts the focus from the conditioned worldly realm, which is built on self-view always, into the realm of the heart and ethical conduct. So this brings me back to Mick Jagger and Einstein because it can feel just like what the song says. I try and I try and I try and I can't find no satisfaction. But when we are tired of that, tired of feeling frustrated and discouraged and despairing and self-critical and irritable and defensive and fearful, or many of those other painful, protected, closed down feelings. There is a way out. But as Einstein said, we can't solve a problem with the mindset that created it. Instead, we need to shift to a different frequency. One that receives the signals from the body and heart rather than from the mind and thoughts. And we strengthen that frequency through meditation. In meditation, we practice connecting to the body and the breath to open, soften, and widen into the heart. That is where healing and wisdom resides. And this is how we find that middle way between halting and struggling. This heart frequency is awareness itself. Receiving experience as it is arising without identifying it as me or mine. The Buddha explains that this kind of shift doesn't happen through either wishing or not wishing, only by developing appropriate wise action grounded in the Noble Eightfold Path is the heart released. In another sutta, the Buddha gives the simile of a hen sitting on her eggs. He says, she may wish that her chicks break through their shells and hatch out safely, but it doesn't have anything to do with wishing. It'll only happen if she has warmed them and covered them and protected them. It doesn't matter at all whether she wished for it or didn't wish for it. So too for our practice. Just hoping for release from clinging doesn't bring results. We all know that, right? We've all tried that system. Clinging is weakened only through mental development and wise reflection. To know this is suffering, this is the cause of suffering, this is the end of suffering, this is the path leading to the end of suffering. And the phrase that best reminds me to pause, to cultivate the eightfold path through the action, my own actions of body, speech, and mind, and to remember my true intentions for a life of greater peace and happiness is very brief, very simple. Infinite patience, boundless compassion. I found that when the floodwaters of confusion or worry or anger or sadness threaten to swamp me, this simple phrase reminds me there is a middle way. Infinite patience, boundless compassion. So may each of you 
find a middle way between halting and struggling, and may you awaken in this very life. <laughs>